would take a copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. So let's give our hearts and minds to the Word of God. It says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldamach, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And we pray. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we thank you for this word. Nourish us now. Give us strength by these words. Help us to know the risen Christ through these words. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So what can we trust? What can we trust when the world around us crumbles? What can we trust when relationships erode? What can we trust when close friends abandon us? What can we trust when leaders stumble? What can we trust when entire nations fall? Is there anything sure and stable and solid? Anything absolutely trustworthy? This passage reassures us that God's prevailing word is trustworthy. God's prevailing word must be the rock for your feet. This passage is also about replacing Judas and restoring the twelve. But beneath the decision to do so is the prevailing word of God. And I want want you to be strengthened by that good news this morning. But we need to take several steps in getting there. The first is that we need to grasp the significance of the twelve. 
We need to grasp the significance of the twelve apostles. In the Old Testament, God's people were represented by the twelve tribes of Israel. The twelve tribes stood for the people of God, which was why it was so grievous when the northern and southern kingdoms split. Sin was ripping apart the people of God. But the prophets foretold of a coming restoration. Ezekiel told of a day when God would reunite his people under a new king in the line of David. The Gospels introduce us to that king, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus begins this this work of creating a a new people for God in In Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, Jesus prays all night long, and the next day he chooses 12 men, whom he names apostles. He had lots of other followers, but he chooses these 12. These 12 apostles end up becoming the, the nucleus of God's new people, a true Israel, so to speak, united to Jesus the King. Twelve isn't an arbitrary number, in other words. It's meant to help us connect the dots with God's unfolding unfolding plan to restore His covenant people. In fact, uh, in the New Jerusalem, in Revelation chapter 21, you find the names of the twelve tribes of Israel and the names of the twelve apostles inscribed on its walls and foundations, showing the continuity of God's plan for His people from the old into the new. But notice the significance of their ministry in that plan. The twelve have a special ministry. Peter calls it this ministry in verse, verses 17 and 25. It's not a ministry they create, but, but one that Jesus appoints them to. We'll see this word. He numbered them. He also calls it apostleship in verses 25 and 26. Now, it's true that apostle can be used more generally in the New Testament to refer to just any sent out one, but but this is unique. This apostleship is unrepeatable. It's apostleship with a capital A. They have special qualifications. And verse 21 lines out some of those, lays out some of those qualifications. It says, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So that's the qualification. These men had to be with Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry until he ascended into heaven. So they were the kind of men, as they're preaching the resurrection, they're the kind of men that that would be able to say that the Jesus we saw rise from the dead, that's the same Jesus we walked with for three years, the same Jesus we ate with, the same Jesus we saw die on the cross. Not even Paul had that qualification. Paul witnessed the risen Christ, yes. Paul was an apostle, yes. But even Paul called himself the apostle who was untimely born. Even Paul went up to Jerusalem, we see this in Galatians 2, to check his gospel 
with that of Peter, James, and John to see if he had not run in vain. The twelve hold a unique place in God's plan of redemption. God's new people, the church, stands on the testimony of the, that these twelve delivered. So if we ask, you know, how does God choose to restore His people? How does He choose to create His new people? Well, he does it through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, which we know about through the testimony of these twelve. The church is founded on the twelve's objective witness to Jesus. Sometimes we call it the gospel, the good news. The gospel creates and sustains the church. That's what happens in Acts. We will find that the twelve start preaching Christ and the church grows and matures and the Lord adds to their number. The church is a a people not built on on clever programs or on a particular uh, strategy we dreamed up or on some fat financial contributions. The church is a people not built on a particular political agenda, we stand on the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection handed down to us through these authorized apostles. And never should we become a people that moves beyond that message, that trades their message for another message. If I start preaching a message that's contrary to the apostolic gospel here, you fire me and call me to repentance. The church lives on the person and work of Christ that these twelve witnessed and then passed on to us through their preaching. If that gospel doesn't endure here, we perish. So the twelve is a significant group authorized by Jesus to establish God's new people on the gospel of His life, death, and resurrection. His life. He obeyed everywhere that we rebelled. His death. He became the substitute, the propitiation for our sins. He bore God's punishment in our place. His resurrection, He rose triumphant over the grave that we might be vindicated with Him one day. This is the message they delivered. But that also means Judas's betrayal is quite serious. That's what I want to look at next. The seriousness of Judas's betrayal. Verse 17 says that he was numbered among them, among the twelve, and was allotted this share in the ministry. But verse 16 says that he became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 25 says he turned aside to go to his own place. He betrayed Jesus. He left his post, and in doing so, he left Jesus altogether. He abandoned the kingdom for his own place. The seriousness of his betrayal gets portrayed in the gory details of Judas' death. If you look there in verse 18, it says, This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the Field was called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. Why the details? We'll see this about Luke. Um, 
Is it just that he's a doctor? Pays attention to these kinds of things? Later on, you know, Herod falls down dead because God, an angel strikes him dead and he's eaten by worms, it says. This is gory. Graphic. Why the details? Why insert this little parenthesis about Judas's bowels gushing out and his field receiving such a cursed name, field of blood? Well, Luke includes the details because they actually help connect Judas to the curses. They help us connect Judas to the curses that are found in Psalm 69, verse 25. He, he quotes it here in verse 20. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. This is an imprecatory psalm. It's pronouncing a curse on the evildoer who opposes God's king. The king is suffering at the hands of enemies in Psalm 69, and he pronounces this curse on his enemies. This involves a curse on the evildoer's life, let there be no one to dwell in it, and a curse on the evildoer's land. May his camp become desolate. And that's exactly what happens to Judas. Uh, Matthew 27 says that Judas hung himself. But we see here there's, there's actually some more details that go into this. Acts shows that it was more than that. It seemed that either the, the branch from which Judas hung himself snapped or his body so decomposed that it eventually fell. The graphic details are disturbing. But that's the point. God's curse is disturbing. God's curse fell on Judas for betraying God's king. He died a cursed death. His field became a cursed land. By betraying the king meant he suffered the king's curse. And so it will be for everyone who aligns themselves with Judas over Jesus. It is serious. But what impact might Judas's betrayal have on the church's mission? What impact might Judas's defection have on this new community? Judas was one of the inner circle. He walked with Jesus. Jesus chose him, cared for him, washed his feet. As the twelve, they were to represent God's new work of redemption. And then one of the twelve betrays Jesus. That may raise some doubts, wouldn't it? Is this really a new work of redemption? Is God really in this? Does, does Jesus really have the power to restore God's people if he can't even keep one of his own? Can Jesus complete the mission if the twelve are no more? How can we really be expected to commit to this work in light of such betrayal? One of the reasons Luke writes is to answer objections like this. The other gospel writers do the same thing. We see it especially in John's gospel. Did I not choose you, one of the twelve? And I mean, choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. Jesus knows what's going on. But this is Luke's contribution to that picture. Acts exists to give certainty to its readers, to give us confidence in God's saving plan through Christ. Yes, Judas is missing from the twelve because of his betrayal. But that never meant that God's plans were frustrated. Rather, they were fulfilled. 
Judas's betrayal and replacement fits within God's sovereign plan as spelled out in the Psalms. Judas is fully responsible for his actions, yes, but God also planned for all of this to occur. That brings us to a third step. Let's look now at the sovereignty of God's word. The sovereignty of God's word. You notice in verse 16, Peter says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Had to be fulfilled. That carries the idea of divine necessity. The, the scriptures made Judas's betrayal and his replacement necessary. The replacement will become the fulfillment of what was promised long ago and was not yet complete. It also says the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. The Holy Spirit does not lie about the future. His words will come to pass without fail. This is not God just looking down the course of history and seeing what Judas may perhaps do and then having David prophesy about it. Rather, God creates history by prophesying about it. His word creates the future. His word is a history-shaping word. His word and his plans are sovereign. But we have to ask, how in the world did Peter get this from the Psalms? Have you ever seen Judas's name in the Psalms? Would you discover Judas's betrayal of Jesus and the need to replace Judas in the Psalms? Where are you getting this, Peter? He's getting it from the way Jesus taught him to read the Psalms. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. As you look at Luke 24, verse 44, it says, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day Rise from the dead. Peter is teaching us what Jesus taught him from the Psalms. In fact, if you just turn forward now to John's Gospel. Let's look at John 13, for example. Just give you a couple of examples of Jesus doing this in his earthly ministry. John 13. And he's actually talking about Judas here. He just uses a different psalm than, than, than uh, John 13, verse 18. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a quotation from Psalm 41. And he's talking about Judas. Okay, so this is an example of, of, Je- of Jesus doing this. Go over to uh, John 15. John 15. And this one's interesting because it's the same psalm that Jesus uses that uh, Peter quotes. Okay, so psalm, this is John 15, verse 25. 
talking about the world that's going to persecute us, but the, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's a quote from Psalm 69, which is the same one that Peter uses. So here we talk, Jesus got enemies in this psalm. Psalm 69, we'll see that a little bit later. So Jesus is teaching the apostles how to do this stuff. Okay, and now Peter comes in and we see this unfolding in Acts also through his preaching. So how, so if we go back to Acts now, how exactly does Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, the two he quotes here in Acts 1, how do they point to Judas in particular? Well, we first have to understand how they point to Jesus. And then Judas will be much easier. So let's have a little lesson on reading Scripture. You know, many times when we think of prophecy being fulfilled, we merely think along lines of direct fulfillment. Okay, so this in the Old Testament over here is that in the New Testament over here. King's going to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. A voice is going to cry in the wilderness. John the Baptist cries in the wilderness. This is that. But that's not the only way prophecy works. If that's the only category of prophecy you've got, then you're going to walk away rather confused at how the apostles apply this or that Old Testament passage to Jesus or to the church or to someone like Judas. In fact, there are some teachers who will say, well, the apostles just got it flat wrong. They're just forcing the Old Testament to say things that it really isn't saying at all. That's a problem. That's a problem because it says right here in verse 16 that the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand through David and he's not a liar. And he doesn't contradict himself. So we have to ask how. We don't ask whether it does or not. We ask how. How do these Psalms speak beforehand about Jesus and about Judas? And more often than not, prophecy is fulfilled along lines of what some have called typology. You don't have to use that fancy word, but it's a good category. The concept needs to be in your mind. Typology looks at the way God reveals himself through events, persons, and institutions in the Old Testament. And these Old Testament events, persons, and institutions, they set patterns, uh, these trajectories that then look forward to Christ and and his kingdom. So there are events like the flood and the exodus, for example. These patterns of the way God works to deliver his people and they point forward to Christ and the kingdom. There are are persons like Adam, for example. Romans 5 calls Adam a type of Christ. Adam, Melchizedek, David. There are institutions like the Passover in the Old Testament and, and the temple system and the whole sacrificial system. Okay, these events, persons, and institutions, they establish patterns that then point forward to the way God plans to work in the future through Christ and the kingdom. I mentioned David in that list of persons. David was Israel's ideal king. God made a special promise to preserve David's throne forever. And even, and this is so significant, because even after David dies, the prophets are still using David's name to uh, look forward to another David, a greater one, with a greater throne and a greater kingdom. David becomes a type within the Old Testament itself. 
A picture of God's anointed king that looks forward to Christ. There must be a David still to come and a better one. We have to keep that in mind even as we read the Psalms that David himself wrote. The way David represents the nation, the way David relates to God as a, as a father relates to a son, uh, the way David prays and, and suffers and triumphs over his enemies, these aspects of David's life in the Psalms, they point forward to the way God would work through the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. Now, there are certain, certainly some things that are different, because I mean, David also confesses sin in the Psalms. David's a sinner. That's the point. Jesus is the better king, because he has no sin. Okay, but, but there are patterns, other patterns, not the sinful patterns, but the, the, uh, some patterns that do point forward to Christ. And God had David write about these things in such a way that they anticipated Jesus. So even the way David writes about his sufferings anticipates the sufferings of Jesus. Many of you probably are more familiar with the cry that Jesus made from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quotation from Psalm 22. A psalm of David. It's David's cry first. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, but Jesus is better, right? David's suffering established a pattern that looked forward to Jesus' sufferings, but Jesus is better only because Jesus' sufferings are greater since, since he endures the wrath of God for us. He's not just enduring enemies approaching him. He's enduring the very wrath of God. Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we would never have to? By placing our trust in Jesus, who experienced the ultimate forsakenness on our behalf, who experienced the ultimate curse in our place, God accepts us. So these psalms that I just mentioned, Psalm 22, the one we saw, Psalm 41, and John, Psalm 69, like we see here, Psalm 109, like we see here, all of these psalms not only speak about David's sufferings, also speak about David's enemies. God's anointed king has enemies that come against him in the Psalms. And even these enemies point forward to the enemies who would set themselves against Christ. Probably one you're most familiar with is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth and the nations... Establish themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. And Peter quotes that in Acts chapter 4 to talk about every, the Gentiles and Pilate and the Jews gathering against Jesus. He's got enemies. There are song, uh, Psalms of David and he's got enemies. And these point forward to the enemies of Christ. And that's the connection here to Judas. Do you see it? Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 are both Psalms of David. David looks forward to Christ. David's sufferings look forward to Christ. And now we see that even David's enemies look forward to Christ's enemies. In this case, Judas. We already saw earlier how David's curses on his enemy, uh, 
on his enemy's life and land were fulfilled in Judas. Psalm 109 adds a further curse, which you see there in verse 20. Let another take his office. In Psalm 109, David is crying out to God. You know, the the, the wicked are encircling him with words of hate. And and the king, he keeps pouring himself out in, in goodness and prayer. But they keep returning him hate and evil. And so he cries out for God to curse them. And one of the, part of that curse is let, let, uh, let another take his office. In other words, get this evil man out of the way and let someone else take the reins. And Peter sees that curse against the enemy of God's king fulfilled in Judas's replacement. And so he concludes from Scripture, we need to find another apostle. Which leads us to one final step, the selection of Matthias. The selection of Matthias. Only two men meet the qualifications we looked at earlier. Verse 23, And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. They pray and flip a coin. Man, I wish elders' meetings were that easy, right? What are we going to do together, guys? I don't know. Roll the dice. Two men equally qualified. They pray, cast a lot. Luke is not necessarily saying the church should make decisions by casting lots. Yes, God sanctioned the casting of lots in the Old Testament, actually. You've got two goats in Leviticus 16. Cast the lot. See which one dies and see which one runs off in the wilderness. You have the land. Cast lots and see who gets what. Got somebody caught in sin, Joshua 7. Let's cast lots and see whom the Lord identifies. In each of these cases, it's the Lord who's doing the choosing. So the apostles aren't sinning for casting lots in this instance, but I find it very telling that you never find the church making decisions by casting lots after the Spirit comes at Pentecost. So Luke's point must be something different here. He's being descriptive more than he is prescriptive with his casting of lots. He's he's describing a unique situation that they have. You see, it's the risen Jesus who must appoint the twelve directly. Jesus must restore the twelve. Just like God made all these choices in the Old Testament. Jesus must make this choice here. That's Luke's emphasis. Look how carefully Luke emphasizes the Lord's sovereign choice. They pray for the Lord to do the choosing. They confess that it's the Lord who knows the hearts of all. They know the Lord will show them which one He wants. And it's the Lord that determines how the lot falls. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the risen Jesus 
What's going to happen? What's about to happen in the book of Acts? The risen Jesus is about to build his church. And he starts by appointing the twelve and reconstituting them. Judas wasn't an accident. His plans, God's plans were never frustrated. The Holy Spirit said this a thousand years before in Scripture. And Jesus is now risen from the dead and he is working to make sure it happens. So what can we take away from this? How does this picture of God's word in the Psalms give us us hope, conviction, joy, fervency, assurance, insight? One takeaway is this. God has given you an inspired word, united in all of its parts. One of the catechism questions we ask at, at home is, how do we know the Bible is the word of God? The Bible evidences itself to be God's word by the heavenliness of its doctrine, the unity of its parts, and its power. I'm doing the hand motions here. Its power to convert sinners and edify saints. Notice one of the answers in that question, to that question, the unity of its parts. Why did I go on for so long about how these psalms anticipated Judas? Why belabor the point with all this typology and patterns? To show you that the Holy Spirit has not left us a disordered mess that makes no sense and contradicts itself from one testament to the other. No, the Spirit has given us a word that's all of one piece. It all fits together coherently and beautifully and it centers us on Jesus. That doesn't mean the Bible is always easy to understand. We have to work hard and think hard on how it fits together, not just throw up our hands and conclude, like some people do, that the apostles just use Scripture for their own ends without really caring what the Old Testament was saying. That's floating around. That kind of teaching is floating around out there under teachers that are professing to be Christians in seminaries. No, the apostles did not abuse Scripture because the Holy Spirit who was leading them to write what they wrote was the same Spirit who inspired the Old Testament and He is trustworthy. He is unchanging. These aren't just the words of men. They are the very words of God. That should give you encouragement when you open this book in the morning, noon, and night. A second takeaway is that God's sovereign word will always prevail. God's sovereign word will always prevail. The scripture, it says, had to be fulfilled. Judas' betrayal, Jesus' sufferings, Judas' death and replacement, all the darkness surrounding the death of Jesus wasn't a moment when God's plan just spun out of control. The need to replace Judas isn't the result of a glitch in God's plans. Judas' defection didn't catch God by surprise as if Judas betrayed Jesus and God says, oops, guess we're going to have to find another guy. No, everything happened just as God planned. History is not the result of random events, but of sovereign orchestration to achieve God's purposes in Scripture. God's plans are not thwarted by wicked people. No matter what evil comes, no matter what 
no matter what betrayal comes to us, against us, God's word stands. God's prevailing word is our assurance that life is never spinning out of control. Never. Jesus' mission is already planned in Holy Scripture, and Jesus is risen in power to ensure it happens. That is absolutely crucial for you to know because it guards us from despair when we face a world wrought with so much sin and evil and pain and betrayal. God doesn't just predict the future. His Word creates the future. And He is sovereign over all history so that it will finally reach the glorious destination that He has planned for all of us. Things are not spinning out of control when the President implements policies that you disagree with. The evil in the Middle East or the evil that's already present in the United States never catches God off guard or frustrates the risen Jesus. The expressed confusion among Christians on matter of race and mercy to the poor and compassion for refugees. Sometimes it comes close, doesn't it? The conversations come close and you're trying to find your bearings. Who do I listen to? This voice saying compassion, this voice saying justice, and they're Christians and I love them and what do I do? And your feet feel like they're slipping. It's never reason to despair as if God's sovereign plan has been called into question. If there was ever a day when someone could have objected, it would have been the day when God crucified His Son. That was the darkest day in history. But even the world's darkest moment In that moment, God was working to fulfill His promise in Scripture to save His people. God sees, God knows, He has a plan to deal with all of it, to right all wrongs, and His Son entered history as part of that plan to redeem the world from its bondage to corruption. And you know what? He's coming again to finish it all. That's really good news for the world. It's also really good news for us personally. If God's word prevails, then every promise in Scripture for God's elect will prevail. Can you think of promises right now? I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 10. Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. 1 Thessalonians 3. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You can take those promises to the bank. Because God's Word prevails. If Judas's betrayal And the cross of Jesus Christ was an oopsie-daisy. We have no hope. 
God's word prevails, we can take his promises to the bank because not only did Jesus die in accordance with the scriptures, he went into the tomb and rose again three days later in accordance with the scriptures. How proud we become sometimes when we look even at our own sin and say, I just don't ever think this is going to go away. Since when did your words determine whether God's promises pass or fail? If he said it, he will do it. If he said, the work I began in you, I will bring it to completion, he's going to bring it to completion. And what, that, what might that mean for the mission of the church? I mean, Acts is a book about Jesus' mission through the church. Judas defected. Does that mean there should be worry like this mission of the church could eventually fizzle out? People walking away from the church? People jumping into sin? Is this thing going to fail? Not a chance. God's word will prevail in the mission of the church just like it prevailed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 that the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms promised that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. What did we talk about earlier? We saw how the Psalms were fulfilled in Jesus' death and Judas's betrayal and Judas's replacement. This is us. That repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Go back and read the Psalms. That's there too. Because when the king is vindicated, guess what he's doing? He's bringing all the nations with him. And that's happening right now. If Peter just pointed out how the Holy Spirit's word in the Psalms had to be fulfilled in Judas, it's just as true that they have to be fulfilled in the forgiveness of sins being broadcast far and wide to the nations so that on the last day, a people from all tongues and tribes be standing before the throne who were bought by the blood. That's exactly what unfolds in the book of Acts, and that's what's unfolding in your lives as believers. We also see that God's word promises judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That word will prevail. So how much more should we be a people who pursue holiness and forsake sin and give ourselves wholly to the king and his agenda. And let's not forget this one too. If God's word prevails, then let the book of Revelation encourage your souls because it paints for us a glorious new heavens and new earth that is coming. Without fail, it will come. God promised it and it must happen. His word will make it happen. That's something to trust in. God's prevailing word. Isaiah said it well. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Nations may crumble. Leaders may fall. Relationships in your life may erode. 
life as we thought it should be may fade away, but you need to know God's Word endures forever. The angel says to John in the book of Revelation that these words are trustworthy and true. Which words? The angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street, the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. These words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray together.